Good afternoon or good morning if you're in Indonesia or somewhere not in Australia. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here at the Australia Indonesia Centre's latest webinar, looking at international education and uh, pathways to participating in the market of Indonesia, a uh, subject that's garnered a lot of interest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have, of course, seen the vulnerabilities of the current models of education most starkly hit by the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. So we have the universities looking for new ways with their business model. We also have in Indonesia a population that is keen to upskill, uh, where a president has put a lot of emphasis on building the vocational sector and couple that with a young population, which pretty much does anything it can online and that will increase as the infrastructure improves in the country and when I say online I don't mean on the computer I mean on their phones so how do you adjust to that kind of trend we're talking to universities to the vocational sector and to someone from the online learning space to have a look at what they're doing in country and what they think lies ahead we are going, of course, to take your questions. We have many questions and we're going to get stuck into those as soon as we can. The aim of these webinars is to bring to you useful conversations where we can learn about what is happening, but also come up with some challenges that perhaps we can work on together. And we do that by tapping into our network of researchers, the networks that the universities have, our partner universities, and trying to find those who can tell us a little bit about what's going on, especially at this uncertain time. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands and the custodians of the lands on which we are meeting from today. I acknowledge the Kulin Nations, that's the traditional owners and custodians of the land where the Australia Indonesia Centre Melbourne office is located and from where I'm hosting today's webinar. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Yora Nation. Those are people whose lands our panellists from Sydney is speaking from today. I acknowledge the Turrbal and Yugara people as the traditional owners of the land at South Bank for our panellists from TAFE, Queensland. And on behalf of myself and our guests, we pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. We recognise their valuable contribution to Australian and global society. Okay, let's go to our panellists and find out from them about what's happening in their landscape. With the immense shake-up in the higher education sector, we're going to speak to Rong Yu Lee, who's the Vice-Chancellor or Deputy Vice-Chancellor, apologies, of external education at the University of Queensland. And uh, his focus is on expanding the quality and scale of domestic and international engagement with students, government, industry, alumni, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander committees. We're also joined by Janelle Chapman, Executive Director of TAFE Queensland. In this role for nearly five years, she was previously the Acting Director of TAFE Queensland International. She has more than 25 years experience in vocational education and training, leading all international business activities for TAFE Queensland, the largest vet provider in the state. And our third panellist, Adam Bremo, Chief Executive Officer of Open Learning. He's co-founder of the social learning platform Open Learning, which began in 2012, offering open online courses or MOOCs to 
over 1 million students, I think that's more than that actually, across Australia and Malaysia and recently Indonesia, named one of Forbes 30 under 30 Asia in the consumer technology section. All very busy people, all with a lot to deal with at the moment and we greatly appreciate that you've all joined us today for this hour. Thank you very much for that. Let's uh, get a little snapshot from you first about what is happening in your sector and how you're managing it. And Adam, I might go to you first. Uh, as a new entrant into Indonesia, can you give us a picture of how you're working with that country? Yeah, definitely. So it's great to be here. Um, nice to see all of you virtually, although I can't quite uh, see you as if we were in person, but it's still great. Um, so open learning, <clears throat> let me share a bit about what we do um, and sort of the context in Indonesia. Um, Open Learning provides a platform which is really focused on enabling education providers and educators to design courses that are much more collaborative, project-based, and social, um, and really aligned to an educational approach um, called social constructivism, which is really this focus on being intrinsically motivated to learn, um, wanting to work with other people to solve problems, um, get to know each other, collaborate, um, do a range of different activities. And that's the core of what we do. And when we started the company in 2012, um, we found that that resonated not just in Australia, in Sydney, where we started, um, but also around the world. And uh, initially, we provide the platform to everyone around the world for free just to test out and use. And in that process, we ended up attracting a lot of students um, and education providers across Southeast Asia. Um, so we started off in Malaysia, where we entered in 2015. And um, today we're the largest platform for higher education, um, online higher education in the country, uh, working with over 50 um, universities and colleges there. Um, in Australia, where we started and we're based in Sydney, uh, we work with nine of the 41 universities and a whole range of private providers. Um, and in Indonesia, where we've sort of been doing the groundwork um, for the past couple of years, we've uh, started working with the Muhammadiyah uh, Universities Group. Uh, and we have a couple of the universities there who are actively using open learning um, more and more now um, that they're delivering courses online uh, as a result of the current situation. But I think what's interesting is that while we have students, and we have about 2.2 million students now um, across the world, um, not just in Australia and Southeast Asia, but also in the US, UK, um, Middle East, Africa, what we have found, though, is that each country requires a different approach. And we've put a lot of time and effort into really understanding um, you know, the culture, the values, the opportunity, the way the higher education system is structured. Um, and through that, we've initially focused on Australia and Malaysia and really tar targeted and tailored uh, the open learning solution, which is the platform, but also it encompasses uh, learning design uh, and marketing and, and support. We've really tailored that to the to our existing markets. Um, and now that we're spending more time uh, learning about and understanding Indonesia and working closely with our partners there, um, we're getting a better sense of, you know, where open learning might fit into that ecosystem and how it can support uh, local educators to transform the education system and increase access and quality within their own country. Um, rather than us trying to, you know, just import um, courses from abroad, we focus on actually fo uh, supporting, you know, local education providers, local educators to make a difference and design higher quality learning experiences. Right. Thanks, Adam. And we'll get more into that partnership that you were talking about, no doubt, during the discussion. I'll turn now to Janelle Chapman from TAFE Queensland. And Janelle, you've had very much a hands-on experience in Indonesia. Tell us a little bit about where it's at at the moment. Thanks, Helen. 
Certainly we have. Um, as you said, we Tape Queensland International merged five years ago and we came from 13 institutes into one to become the largest vocational provider in Queensland overnight. Indonesia has always been important to us off and on over the years, but certainly in these last five years, we've established more of a focus on it as a real market for TAFE Queensland. Um, we believe that there is a strong growth area in skills development in Indonesia, and that goes from the president right down to the operational level. So that support is intrinsic with our strategy for Indonesia. We work with them in three ways. One is student recruitment. So traditionally in the vet sector, Melbourne and Sydney have been the main sources of destinations for Indonesian students in the vocational sector. What we want to do is bring them to Queensland. So we're starting to, to see some growth in that area. But probably more importantly, our growth has mainly been in working government to government, which we can do as a government provider. And we work with Ministry of Religious Affairs, Ministry of Education and Culture, Home Affairs, and most prominently with the Ministry of Manpower. And we've developed many programs over the last couple of years to train their employees in a whole range of different um, topics, from leadership management type topics to understanding VET framework, to understanding competency-based training, what assessment might look like and what industry engagement looks like if you're going to have a great um, you know, rigour uh, around that process. We also work directly with industry and we find that we um, develop a tailor-made or customised program to ensure that the industry in Indonesia gains the skills um, that they need. Now, most times it's not necessarily a qualification outcome. Employers don't necessarily want their employees to be out of the industry for a long time. So we develop a tailor-made program which allows us to deliver that in a variety of different ways. The latest way, because of COVID-19, is through mobile phone apps. You know, being able to deliver short, sharp skill sets development to a mobile phone user, and Indonesia has one of the highest um, you know, user rates in the world for mobile phones. We feel that that's been an opportunity for us during COVID-19 that we probably wouldn't have addressed as diligently um, beforehand. So thank you. Thank you so much, Janelle. And uh, to Rong Yu Lee from the University of Queensland, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, thank you. Uh, can tell us about the university's engagement with Indonesia so far. Thanks, Helen, and thanks for the opportunity. And welcome, everybody, who are joining us uh, from uh, uh, wherever you are remotely. Uh, the University of Queensland, as most of you would know, uh, is a research-intensive university. It's a member of the uh, Group of Eight uh, University in Australia, and it's ranked consistently in all the ranking systems as a top 50 university in the world. Uh, it's a very large university by international standards. We've got uh, uh, more than 54,000 students studying with us at all levels. And interestingly, uh, the University of Queensland has the largest uh, high degrees by research cohort uh, and on any given year with graduates close to 700 or 800 PhDs. Uh, so that's very significant. And, and that's probably why uh, the university has collaborated with Indonesia 
particularly University of Indonesia and the uh, Indonesian Institute of Sciences for over 50 years. Now that's actually longer than some of the Australian universities in the country. And so our collaboration with Indonesia has been very comprehensive. So it's not necessarily just a student recruitment approach. We've done more in research collaborations, uh, in executive education, uh, and in international development projects. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't uh, know, uh, outside of uh, Australian National University, University of Queensland is the second go-to institution for international development project. And that's very much aligned with the Australian government focus uh, in, in the immediate region. Uh, and our student mobility has also been uh, a two-way traffic. We receive just as many Indonesian students as we place our own students in Indonesian institutions. And, and that's actually very important. Uh, the other important uh, engagement aspect we have with Indonesia is uh, the diversity and the dis distribution of student you know, population uh, in our university systems. Uh, unlike the students from China or other countries, they tend to be concentrated in one particular field of study area. The students we have from Indonesia, they are very well evenly distributed. And interestingly, uh, they're not concentrated in business or commerce and management programs. Uh, a significant number of them are interested in doing Bachelor of Arts. So that's very encouraging for us. And we've got actually uh, probably more students doing PhDs with us. And often they are either sponsored by Indonesian authorities or they are the winners of Australian awards. Uh, so they do come to us for a variety of reasons. And we have staff, members of staff, uh, prior to COVID-19, uh, regularly visiting Indonesia including remote areas of Indonesia, and most recently, thanks to the Australia Indonesian Centre, we have become uh, a university partner uh, in the Australian, um, Australian Indonesian Centre initiative, uh, trying to actually lead a particular stream of work that the partnership has established. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm happy to answer any question. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you've mentioned research, and that's something we definitely need to pick up on in this conversation because the research aspect is so important. But I'm, I'm going to pop up a question uh, already um, because it touches on what you were talking about, Rongyu, around students visiting or vice versa. And then, Janelle, um, take, I'd like to take it a bit wider to you around how you maintain the relationships if you can't visit the country and ensure that the you know can the learning still take place so the question is from uh, Eleanor Williams at the Australian National University and if we could perhaps pop that slide up again uh, how can student mobility and intercultural skills development continue when students cannot be mobile in this new COVID world uh, Rongyu do you mind if I go to you first on that uh, I imagine uh, this is one of your greatest challenges at the moment. That's a very good question. I, I think um, sometimes even uh, those of us working within the university system, we complain that we are not agile and uh, nimble enough, you know, to make changes. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, uh, once we got the uh, impact of COVID-19, we paused for a week 
within that week, we moved everything online. And that was actually something the university probably discussed and contemplated and tried to do for many years without actually getting there. And within a week, we've done it. Right. And, 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 you know, Adam is, is on the panel. I think you have to be careful now because we are moving into your space <laughs> going forward, certainly. We partner with universities, actually. We are talking about actually a, a hybrid model. And I think, you know, in, in, uh, when everybody's grounded, it's more important to engage using technology. And that's probably exactly what we've done just to make sure that we maximize the power of technology in teaching, learning, in student engagement, in conversations. Even though we're not seeing our colleagues, our students face to face, we are, uh, in fact, more connected. It's much easier to actually uh, connect with our partners um, overseas than probably physically. Uh, I think that's going to change the way we operate going forward. I mean, I'm just going to sorry jump in there because and and go to Adam because this is where the technology is really making its mark, isn't it? Mm. And it's yeah. platform providers that are actually, I understand, helping the universities make this shift. Is that correct, Adam? Yeah, I think that that's correct. I mean, I think one um, challenge though that we have seen is that a lot of um, you know, I, I guess the speed at which you know the sort of the, the virus has um, impacted everyone has forced everyone to move very quickly. Um, the challenge is that actually designing um, high quality online learning experiences uh, takes time. And you know, I think while it might be possible to sort of do remote learning, I would say, where you know, almost in a Zoom session, you are having interaction, um, you know, with people and discussing things. I think that's more of a tutoring approach, you know, to be honest, um, to actually design a high quality course, a high quality learning experience where you involve um, learning designers, you involve subject matter experts, um, you sit down and you think about what the outcomes of the course you're trying to achieve are, um, and you work backwards and say, okay, well, this course is you know, going to be 150 hours of learning. It's going to have multiple projects, case studies, scenarios. Um, how do we want the students to interact? How do we want them to form a community? Um, that, that takes time and it can take months, um, you know, in the lead up to building a, a great course. And I think um, that's probably the challenge going forward, which is there are platforms like Open Learning that are purpose built for that kind of collaboration, that kind of project based learning. Um, but you also need to have a really strong uh, learning design uh, capability either at the university itself uh, with the university's internal staff um, or bringing in external companies as well. Um, to, to actually develop and design those kinds of courses and have a very, uh, you know, high quality learning experience that, um, that can sort of match up or even surpass sometimes the face to face experience. I think one interesting element, um, and I'm sure everyone sort of noticed this as well, you know, when we're working remotely, whether that's, you know, um, in the workplace or in, in delivering a course, um, in some ways it's easier to uh, maintain existing relationships remotely. Than it is to build new ones, and I think that's a challenge for for all of us, um, both in the workplace and at, at in education providers, where you know if students have already built up that rapport with each other, they've already gotten to know both each other and the lecturer, then that remote learning um, work can work a bit better. But the big challenge, I think, is you know from the outset, you have a new student coming in who has never experienced um, Australian education or Indonesian education before. How do you you know have have them come together? How do you break down the barriers to communication and, and build up um, that cultural exchange uh, entirely online? 
And I think that that's a challenge and it takes time. And it's something that I'm sure the University of Queensland, TAFE Queensland and, and, and Open Learning, we're all sort of working on at the moment as well. Thanks, Adam. Janelle, going to you, because your model very much relies on in-country training, working with industry. Uh, have you been able to continue with that or have you had to find other ways to deliver your programs? I think across Australia, vet providers have been able to look at other ways of doing this. So whilst conversation often happens around universities, I think with the vocational sector, the added complexity is about being able to deliver a practical component. And I agree with Adam entirely. To make that really worthwhile, it takes time and it takes money if you can do it. Um, so we, we need to make sure that we've got that really good mix of theory and practical skills. The interaction to me is the most important component of this. We've all done online training over the years and online learning in our own personal lives where it hasn't necessarily been as fulfilling as you would like it to be. So I think it's more about having something that is very interactive and whether you need an online platform to be able to do that certainly something that is designed well to give you the outcomes that are needed and particularly for us in the vocational sector those outcomes need to be employable you know you need to have employability skills and graduate with those skills so if you can't do that face to face that's a real dilemma in some areas some um, programs have needed to be deferred until that face to face can occur or we have to look at alternatives for being able to do that practical component in their home country and being able to engage with industry um, in that respect. I think the other thing that needs to be considered is how do you train teachers who are used to a face-to-face -face environment to deal with the complexity of an online environment? And it is a very different way of delivering in lots of respects, not having that immediate feedback from students. So I think that training of teachers in this space is just as important as the actual delivery content itself. And Janelle, just quickly, you said that you've just put some plans to one side. Does that mean you're maintaining the relationship remotely and just waiting for when it returns to normal, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, WhatsApp has always been an important communication um, channel for Indonesia anyway. So that's really been no different. You know, in fact... A big part of um, the relationship with Indonesia and working with them is getting used to the fact that they want to do everything on WhatsApp as opposed to email. Mm -hmm. So often you have to be transferring information across different systems to keep it all consistent and, and um, in your own mind. But that's just the way it is. And you have to accept that or you'll miss out. That's how you're doing business. We have got a question around how you do expand your business or think about maintaining your business relationship in this environment. I'll just pop that slide up from Noke Kirian of Kirian Partners in Jakarta. To what extent has the COVID-19 pandemic changed your plans in respect to expanding your business to Indonesia? And also perhaps looking at the um, economic agreement, IA SEPA. Uh, wrong you, I might go to you. Um, just your thoughts on how you're adjusting your view about what comes, say, in the next few years. Yeah, uh, COVID-19 has certainly provided that opportunity for the university to look at, you know, our operating model. Uh, I think, you know, so far we have been uh, very successful with a face-to-face, -face, uh, high-touch 
uh, way of uh, delivery uh, of our programs. Uh, and right now, uh, there are lots and lots of conversations and debate uh, within the university about, you know, what the university is going to look like post COVID-19. Is the current model a model going to be sustainable? Is it going to be viable? Uh, and especially if you take into consideration, you know, the anxieties generated by uh, COVID-19 and the geopolitical tensions, you know, created by the, uh, the, the, the COVID-19. I think we have to plan ahead uh, and looking at how can we redistribute, you know, the risks. While we have uh, placed Indonesia as a top, uh, top 10 priority country that we need to engage with, I think going forward, you know, how, how do we engage? What would that approach be? And, you know, it's a tough question. Uh, at the moment, uh, we've got a business continuity plan uh, in terms of partnerships for the whole university. We don't want to actually drop the ball or, or because of COVID-19, we disengage and we allow a longer lapse. I think, you know, this is the time that we all need to collaborate. We are in it together and we look at actually Indonesia uh, as a long-term uh, partnership uh, uh, mutually beneficial rather than actually just a taking approach. Uh, and that has been very important. Our partners really appreciate that. Uh, but in terms of actually uh, operating model, I think I mentioned it briefly uh, in answering the, the first question. We are thinking about, um, you know, maintaining uh, a, a significant portion of the current model, but also thinking about you know, a fully online uh, remote learning product, you know, with the right content, with the right technology, but at the same time, as Janelle mentioned, train the trainers together, train the students, because both the trainers and the learners will have to be able to navigate a new way of delivery. But the third element would be what we call a hybrid model. So we actually deliver some of the... Uh, uh, the, the fundamentals, you know, using probably online platforms, but we continue to build uh, a residential or, or intensive teaching block. And we get actually our staff, students going, you know, to Indonesia once travel restrictions are, are lifted and also get, you know, partners and students, researchers to come to the university because that physical, uh, in the situation, you know, environment, really important to promote, you know, deeper understanding, that cultural understanding. Indonesia is a very rich country. Actually, sometimes we just think we can learn so much from them rather than actually taking the approach that we are the best. You know, we can impose on a lot of things because the cultural and religious context and political economic context are so important. And it's very difficult to navigate. So we do rely on our partners to teach us, you know, many of those things that can help us to actually uh, uh, become, you know, a sustainable partner. Uh, so I think, you know, our approach is not just a UQ designed and facilitated approach. We are working with our partners to make sure that, you know, that design is a cold design and it's going to work and has got a much bigger opportunity to work. Great. Thank you. Very interesting, uh, the answer and an indication of which direction you're looking towards. 
Adam, if I can just go to you briefly, I'm curious about your plans for Indonesia. I suspect that the partnership you have with Muhammadiyah, one of the largest Islamic organisations and education providers in Indonesia, um, has actually come at an opportune time in many ways with some travel restrictions, for instance. Are you looking at changing your plans at all for that country? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and um, I agree with Rongyu's comments, actually, as well, particularly uh, around the fact that these are long-term partnerships. Um, I think that that's really critical. Um, so I think we're, uh, we're in a good position in the sense that um, when we started expanding to Southeast Asia in, in 2014, 2015, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, really uh, getting to know um, different organizations, different people, uh, building relationships, um, providing a lot of what we're doing um, for free to test out the market um, and to see how we can support um, you know, the local goals and plans uh, of each country's education system. Um, and I guess some of those, um, you know, some of those things we explored took us to Indonesia a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I, I traveled there quite a few times and we've gotten to know a number of organizations. And uh, through that process, uh, we found that um, a couple of universities in the Mohammedia group were actually using the platform already. And they were uh, exploring different ways of actually uh, building online courses for their own students and for the public um, in Indonesia. So they actually began that process sort of um, early last year, mid last year of building out more courses. And from what we can see, that's actually accelerated um, earlier this year. And I think, you know, for us, from a, a company's perspective, um, we're fairly focused on Australia and Southeast Asia as a whole. Um, we're very careful not to try and take on uh, too much. Um, you know, we're, we're a fairly small company. We have about 50 staff, um, the majority in Sydney, about uh, 20 in, in KL. Uh, and a few around the world. And we're actually looking at where we can make the biggest impact. And um, Indonesia is a market that we think we, we can do something meaningful in. And we're quite encouraged by the types of courses, the quality of the courses, and, and the level of adoption that we're seeing um, with the Mohammedia group and, and our partners there. And we're hoping that that continues. Um, but I guess the way we see it is that, you know, we're, we'll take our time. Um, we'll understand the challenges um, that they're facing, we'll refine our product, we'll make sure that we have support um, in local language, that we can support the local regulations um, for the higher education uh, system there. Um, and I think you'll see us probably do more in that space over time. Okay, thanks, Adam. And I have a, we have a question that's coming from one of the, um, a member of the audience, which is for all of you, Andrew Hayes from Macquarie University. What are some of the key risks perceived by you when going into Indonesia? And how would you navigate these risks, especially the regulatory challenges? Now, of course, we talk about Indonesia, but we know when it comes to education, it is not the easiest space to navigate. And the regulations can also prove uh, somewhat testing of your skill to work through um, issues, but you have all done it. So what's your perception at the moment of where the risks are at and where the regulations are at? Perhaps if I could start with you, Janelle. Thanks, Helen. Um, I think historically um, it's always been a, a lack of understanding about the importance of the vet sector. So if I just focus on that, obviously that's my um, my baby, um, and about the importance of skills development. It's something that's changing over time. And, you know, President Jokowi has said that by 2030 he wants 58 million people upskilled. 
Now that's a lot of people and you know a relatively short amount of time. Um, what they're doing is actually putting money towards it. Now one of the biggest challenges is always the sorry bureaucracy in um, Indonesia. It's a minefield to be able to navigate at times, um, and then you know trying to get the right department, and then also finding the right decision makers and the people that hold the purse strings to be able to fund any training that's likely to go ahead. We have found over the years that the best way is to have a person who understands that system. So we actually employ a part-time person who is Indonesian, who has the networks that we need. He does the legwork and breaks down a lot of the barriers for us then to be able to come in and be able to then have the conversations that we need to with the right people. Um, we have also um, been able to leverage from the training that we've done of um, government employees over the years. So those that we might have trained, you know, five years ago are now in positions of power. Those relationships have been developed over time and the relationship building is important in any culture, but certainly very much in Indonesia. I can honestly say it probably took us five years of going into market and trying to build these relationships before we really saw any traction. And that's a big ask for a business to be able to wear that cost of time and development over that time frame. There was a time and it was almost like a flick of the switch where everything seemed to fall into place and we started to win things and they just fed off each other. So I think people have to be willing to prepare to be prepared to put in the hard yards with building the relationships and not expect to go once into market and expect that they will gain some business out of that. Um, the length of time is a vital part of your strategy. So you need to put your toe in the water and then build on that over the years. So ensure that you have that. But there are successful examples, particularly in the mining and construction industry, where there have been long-term relationships um, with Australian partners and Indonesia. The current social distancing rules actually work in your favour a little bit because it means that government employees aren't probably as busy travelling around Indonesia or the world as they would normally be. And so we're finding it sometimes easier to get in contact with them. So that's a plus. And and that by that WhatsApp, <laughs> that's a good exactly. point. Exactly, <laughs> thought about it, Janelle. Oh, wrong you. Your thoughts, thanks. Uh, I I, th I think it's uh, uh, it's very simple in in in, in many ways. Uh, uh, our uh, philosophy is do the right thing. You, know, you don't want to actually do something that's not compliant with the uh, the jurisdictions in you know, a regulatory framework. And if we had to comply with a lot of those things ourselves here in Australia, you know, naturally you can expect, you know, there are many, you know, regulatory and legislative, you know, frameworks and, and, you know, we have to comply in, in another country. Uh, Universal Queensland does have a representative office in Indonesia. I think, you know, that, that's very helpful. The other thing is most of our relationships are built organically between people of similar interest. What we as a university uh, is doing is to give it some institutional steering, making sure that if those organic relationships built between individuals and teams, if they have an opportunity to be institutionalized and benefit much wider university community, 
and the Indonesian community, that's when we step in as a university, you know, we'll give some central support. And we can also mobilize our networks in Indonesia and because the university has nearly 3,000 alumni. And many of them actually work in very important jobs, including, you know, some in ministerial positions. You know, you can actually align with your priority with Indonesian national economic development and social cultural priorities. I think it's achieving that alignment is very important and that you, you are perceived to be working to actually help them and working together with them rather than actually just trying to impose anything or going quickly uh, to make a buckle to. I think the, the approach is really important. We need to get the a- attitude right, get the objectives right, and more importantly, do the right thing. Thank you, Rongyu. And Adam, I'm not going to get you to answer that question because I think you've alluded to it already, talking about the regulations and working within them. Um, because we've had a question come up from the audience, which I think uh, you're all well-placed to answer um, as well. But Adam, wanting to start with you, this is from Barney Delgano of the University of Canberra. Interested to know whether the panellists would suggest partnering with an Indonesian university, which you have done, Adam, to develop face-to-face online higher education programs, or Adam, in your case, helping them develop their programs, or is it collaborating with the ministries that is more important? This is often a question. Um, I'm curious about your experience first, Adam, because as you said, it was was kind of an organic process. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I don't think there's a simple and clear answer, Um, but I think both uh, both avenues... um, can yield results depending on the type of program you're developing. Um, I think, you know, online education is growing significantly in Indonesia. Um, I think we, we all understand that and we all hope it grows to some extent. Um, but there are still challenges with that um, in the sense that, you know, for a full um, degree program, an accredited qualification, delivering that online um, in Indonesia um, will come with a, a range of challenges, both regulatory but also even access um, or reliable access to the internet uh, throughout the duration of that program. So there are some types of programs that will make sense to be delivered online uh, remotely. Um, and we think those, you know, are, are more around uh, professional development, um, lifelong learning. Um, so sometimes more in the postgraduate space where people are working um, and they may not even be full qualifications. They could be short courses or micro credentials. Um, but then there's a whole range of programs, I think particularly undergraduate programs, where um, if you're looking at delivering that online remotely, that will pose a challenge, both from a technology perspective, a cultural perspective, and a regulatory um, perspective as well. So partnering with um, a university to do that uh, locally would, might make sense. Um, I think the other thing to be aware of is that, uh, and, and I'm sure that um, you know my colleagues in the panel know this far better than, than I do, that not all uh, qualifications are um, accepted in every country. So um, you have to make sure that the type of qualification that you're offering, um, if it is from an Australian um, education provider and it's accredited in Australia, that doesn't mean it's automatically going to be accepted um, by local businesses and, and um, the Indonesian uh, public servants. Um, so I think it, it depends on the type of program that's being run as well. Um, I think from our perspective, um, we've actually done both. Um, you know, our core business is really providing our platform to education providers to deliver um, their programs and courses online, be it accredited or non-accredited. And we have accredited and non-accredited courses 
from um, Australia, Malaysia, Indonesia, many other countries. Um, but I think at the same time, we also see that you know some courses uh, can't be delivered in that way. And sometimes a collaboration between uh, universities across uh, geographies actually can, can yield very good results. Um, and we've seen that in particular with the work that we've done in Malaysia, where there are a lot of uh, universities there that are offering dual accreditation or twinning programs. Um, and that's been around for some time and that's been quite effective there as well. Um, quick response, Janelle, ministry or university or industry in your case? I think it's a mix of both and it depends on the industry. We've often found um, pools of funds in really obscure, um, you know, um, departments. So, you know, it is about that understanding of, of what they can do. The other thing that I would say is that sometimes it's not straightforward with being able to get funds for training. So the funds may need to be used in a very prescriptive way um, from the department. So it might be something as simple as there, it always has to go through a broker um, so there will always often be a third party involved in any of this. But it might be that the funds aren't allowed to be used for training but can be used for accommodation and airfares or vice versa. So it is just doing your due diligence to ensure that you are very clear about what um, any requirements are about working with that particular um, ministry or industry and then going from there. Wrong you. What, what are your... Very quickly, very quickly, I, I think we, uh, uh, our approach, I think it's a very sensible approach is, uh, understand, you know, what we're trying to achieve, uh, and also, uh, test, test the concept. Uh, I think that's very important, you know, test it with, you know, partners and, and uh, government agencies, run it past them and just to see if this is going to fly. Uh, before you actually, you know, invest a lot of resources behind it. Uh, we've, we are operating in different environments. Australian universities are self-accreditating institutions. We don't have to actually seek Ministry of Education approval, you know, to do anything, uh, provided that we comply with Texas standards. Uh, but in a different, you know, political, cultural, you know, setting, um, that's very different and often in Indonesia or in China, in many other countries, you, you can actually put together an initiative, but it's best if you get government endorsement. So I think it's doing the homework, making sure you're, you're you know, very well prepared before you invest too much into it. Mm. We've got another question uh, which sort of relates to that. When, when you're talking about testing wrongly, what works uh, from Anne-Marie Hyde Head, sorry, from Victoria University, She's very interested to hear the appetite for higher degree by research and whether Indonesia's priorities for research and Indonesia's priorities for research training. Um, I think this also gets to the perceived, um, the aura of partnering with a large university of, you know, overseas and having the experience in country as well. I mean, that's all going to change. Perhaps there's going to be more interest in micro-credentialing as well. Uh, so what are you finding wrong you from that testing that the um, the interest is actually shifting to? And then I'll check with the other two panellists as well. well. Indonesia is a very uh, populated country, uh, if you like, you know, um, after China, India, 
uh, you know, US, you, you find that Indonesia is quite up there in terms of population and it is a developing country. You'd find a market in just about every segment. I think it all depends on, you know, what you, you, your strategic objective is for UQ because we want to continue to build that research intensive, you know, profile of the university. So we've been doing a lot of research, collaborative research. And, and often it's applied research. It's not necessarily blue sky research for a developing country. They want solutions. They want applications. And that's why we, we, we are very excited to be part of the Australia Indonesia center initiative, you know, to work with, you know, nine carefully selected institutions in Indonesia. One challenge, I think, you know, if the question was from Victoria University is they are very brand conscious. They are very conscious of the rankings and often, in fact, that comes from Indonesian government saying they don't want, want to partner with anybody, you know, ranked outside the top 200. So I think, you know, in that context, it's about, you know, whether you can find a niche partner, you know, making sure that you've got, uh, you know, objectives line up and both parties are comparable, you know, and compatible. So I think that, that that's often, um, the approach because otherwise if you just listen to you know people say you know you're not a, a top 200 you know ranked institution then there's no chance it's not necessarily the case i think there's there's a marketplace you know for everybody because it's such a big country and there's so many different needs so just you know find that niche area that you are good at and you can find a partner you can work with that would be you know a good place to start mm. Adam, I think you're big on micro-credentials and, and the direction that's going in. Yeah, we are. So, um, you know, I think what we've seen is that, um, as Rangi was saying, there's a lot of different markets um, out there, uh, especially in a country as large as Indonesia. And I think one of the opportunities that we've seen, um, particularly for Australian education providers, is providing um, courses for working professionals aligned to the, um, the skills gaps in industry. Um, you know, I think based on some of the research that, that we've been seeing that there's a substantial portion of the Indonesian workforce that is, um, sort of underskilled, uh, even for the jobs that they're currently doing. And, um, that can be a result of something as simple as someone studying, uh, marketing, uh, 10 years ago, but not refreshing that with digital marketing. Um, so what we've seen is that if there's a way um, to provide uh, short courses that are branded uh, by a recognized institution, uh, I don't think it has to be uh, a top brand institution, but the brand is obviously very important uh, as well. But for these types of courses, I think more important is that it's going to deliver a skills outcome. And one of the things that we've been working on um, in Australia recently is a framework uh, called OpenCreds, which looks at creating a standard and a process for developing micro-credentials um, that could eventually lead towards credit um, at a range of institutions. And really for us, that's about ensuring the quality of the course that's being delivered, um, the, the volume of learning, uh, the style, the outcomes, um, and ensuring that it actually generates enough evidence uh, for an RPL process. Um, so I think if, if we're able to package uh, micro-credentials up in such a way that it's not just, you know, a, a uh, sort of a non-accredited online course that no one really cares about. It's actually something quite substantial will deliver a skills outcome. Um, then I think that's an area where uh, there is a significant opportunity. 
and an area that is um, underserved um, by a lot of local institutions um, in, in Southeast Asia generally, but also in Indonesia at the moment as well. Now, Janelle, I'm going to go to you, but I, instead of picking up on that question, which I know you can answer very well, but we've had an interesting question pop up, and I think only you can answer this one. Um, uh, Michael Fay from the ASEAN Focus Group has asked, why has the Australian vet sector been relatively unsuccessful partnering? Now, this is another one. Why has the Australian vet sector been relatively unsuccessful in partnering with major Australian companies active in Indonesia, as an example, Coca-Cola, Amatol and Blue Scope, who train their employees in-house with their own training arms? So, yeah, it's a valid point, Michael. Um, it's not for the want of trying, let me tell you. Often what has happened over the years is that um, vet providers have tried to get into those um, industries to be able to work with them to train um, in Indonesia. What we found um, happened is they would often um, get, I suppose, frustrated um, about the lack of support to be able to do that, either from the Australian provider or from the Indonesian market. And it became much easier for those large companies to develop their own in-house training. Now, that doesn't mean that things aren't changing. So we're finding with a couple of these um, market or companies now that they're looking at um, ways to be able to get back out there and to have Australian vet providers train. There's a small amount, and it certainly um, can lead to growth in particular emerging industries, but at the moment it's a really difficult one to gauge. Um, it is about identifying the right partner and making sure that you can deliver what they want. Many providers will often go in with a, a one-stop shop and they will be able to tailor a program that is customised for that particular partner. That's the only way to go for Indonesia. You can't go in with an off-the-shelf product and use it in the rail industry or construction or mining or whatever it might be. Think carefully and it's a lot of communication with the partner up front about what their desired outcome is and then developing a program and looking at the models of delivery for that that will meet those needs. If you can't do that, you won't be successful. And that's probably one of the reasons why Australian vet providers haven't been as successful over the years because you do need to be flexible, but you also need to invest the time in developing the relationship with them. A lot of the work that we did in the early years was about profiling what TAFE Queensland could do. You had to educate the market, and that included government and industry, and then trust develops. We often run pilot projects. So Romu said before about testing the market. We run a pilot project of master trainers in a particular industry area with the view that they would be able to disseminate that training out further in their own country. So it is looking at flexibility and tailoring and customising training specific for that partner and industry. Okay, thank you, Janelle. And final question uh, to wrap up, because in these webinars or these live in conversations, we try and have a look at what the challenge is between the two countries and how we can work better together, not perhaps just between the two countries, but working together in the region. So I'd love you to have a think about this, and it can go both ways. It's a question that was sent to us from Elizabeth Campbell-Dorning, who's with the Australian Department of Education, Skills and Employment, so federal government, 
How can Australian providers best support Indonesian partner institutions to help them navigate the current crisis? Uh, and as you say, um, it might be a two-way street as well. So I'll just leave that up there for a minute so you can think about that. Need some thinking music here. And back to the panellists, uh, I might start wrong you with you first because I'm sure that you've had, um, we've been discussing a bit about this, so if I can go to you first on that. Thanks, Helen. Uh, that's a very good question. I think it underpins the, uh, the importance of taking the long-term approach. Uh, you know, good partners stay together in bad times and in good times. And we have actually uh, ramped up our engagement with uh, with our partners, you know, keeping in touch on a regular basis, vice chancellors writing to each other and having Zoom meetings. Uh, but more importantly, I think Australia has done, you know, so well in, in uh, containing the spread of the virus. And that gives us the opportunity to think ahead about, you know, post-COVID-19, what is that going to look like? And how do we actually help our partners, um, you know, getting a better outcome as well? Uh, I don't think, you know, these things are easily achievable at the institutional level. We do need uh, both national governments to come together to make a very serious commitment. Uh, I think the uh, free trade agreement is going to facilitate that, but I I'm quite encouraged by the uh, most recent, you know, narrative and rhetoric coming out of Australian government in terms of how we strategically engage, you know, the immediate region. Uh, and that's very important. And especially when we are uh, running into some difficulties with, you know, both the US foreign policy and the Chinese, um, you know, stance, you know, when it comes to trade or geopolitical tensions, we do need to think much more strategically. Uh, no two universities or TAFE institutes or online, you know, education delivery can actually make that kind of impact uh, that are benefiting a much wider community in both countries. I think we do need government uh, to come in and I'm happy, I'm glad that the question comes from the Department of Education. We do need uh, Australian government and the different government agencies to take that leadership role in facilitating bilateral, multilateral, uh, you know, uh, relationships and create some vehicles and platforms on which institutions can come on board, you know, to build on past successes. And so we, we take a long-term long approach going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Rongyu. Uh, Adam, I'll go to you briefly. Thoughts on, is Mohammedia reaching out to you in a certain way during the coronavirus pandemic in terms of its students and courses? Yeah, so we've been providing um, extensive support um, to, to those universities and also to all of our partners around the world. Um, at, at, over the past few months, you know, we've had to move quickly as well to expand our customer success, customer service, service operation, um, both for students, but also for educators. Um, so one of the things that we've done is we've um, put out quite a few resources on how to teach online, um, but not just designing courses, actually how to facilitate courses how to increase engagement, because um, the greatest challenge we've seen is in some cases less from the students and more from um, the education providers and the lecturers themselves in going through that, you know, very stressful and challenging process 
of trying to move your course online and then facilitate it effectively. Um, so we've ensured that we've provided that kind of support um, to all of our partners, both here and across the region. Um, I would also say that, you know, over the years, um, particularly a lot of the work that we've done um, in Malaysia has been in partnership with local universities, um, but also the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Higher Education um, as well. And we've looked at it, I guess, from a, a nationwide perspective. Um, we, in many cases, get involved in very large scale um, training or transformation programs where you have um, uh, dozens, in some cases, of universities and polytechnics uh, working together to design courses, share resources, and solve problems. Um, and, you know, we've done that, I guess, uh, because we're interested in it, um, but we also think it, it makes a big, it can make a big impact in the country. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we look at doing on a large scale um, across the region. And I think in a time like this, um, as we've been saying, it's really important to keep in touch with your partners and support them uh, in the best way you can using the resources that you have. Great. Thanks, Adam. Uh, and finally, Janelle, some quick thoughts from you as we uh, start wrapping up. So I agree with Rongyu and Adam. You know, the, the relationship is vital and probably more important at this point in time. In some respects, it's probably a good opportunity because not only Australian providers are going through this issue, the Indonesian providers are having issues as well. So it is about looking at solutions in a collaborative way. You know, looking at um, if we can't get over there to do face-to-face training, how else might we do might we do it? You know, do you have a webinar? Do you have other um, alternatives to be, you know, to give the outcomes that you still need? Um, the only thing I would say that with a word of caution is the um, the secure corridor um, notion that if Indonesia is not included in initial, um, you know, planning around having them those students come in, that could be um, disadvantage for Australian providers across all sectors. Excellent. Thank you. And unfortunately, that's where we'll have to leave it. Uh, I know there is so much more we can discuss, but what we're going to do is have a look at some of the questions that have come in that perhaps haven't been covered and see if we can answer them online or another way. We'll try and um, we'll try and sort something out. We might even engage with you on that as well. Uh, but it's been a fantastic hour. So interesting. Um, so much is changing. And it's great to hear from three people who are at the forefront of that change and trying to find uh, ways through it and adjust to what is now happening and, and find a new normal, so to speak. So I'd like to thank Rong Yu Lee, Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Queensland for external engagement, Adam Bremo, CEO and co-founder of Open Learning, and Janelle Chapman, Chief uh, Executive Director, my apologies, of uh, Take Queensland. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you to everyone who has joined us today. Really lovely to have you on board. We had uh, 500 registrations and we hit our max, so we couldn't take any more. Uh, we'll be looking into that, see what we can do next time. And uh, we are going to put this webinar replay online very quickly. It should be up by tonight on ai.com. So you can go back and have a look at it. We've got a little survey at the end. Once you dip out, it'd be lovely if you could uh, do that survey for us as we try and improve our offering and and increase the good vibes of the relationship between Australia and Indonesia. We're always looking for ideas and your thoughts on that. Uh, now, we are going to take a little break from providing a webinar, maybe just for a month, um, as we take stock of all the information we've had come at us already and also prepare for our next big series where we're going to look at 
what happens in a world of coronavirus, of COVID-19? How do we look at it when we look at our areas of um, partnerships in health, in youth, in entrepreneurship? I'm going to cover quite a few areas and dip again into our team of researchers and our network to bring you some more interesting conversations, some more interesting dialogues uh, that can hopefully help us think ahead and uh, make the relationship between the two countries stronger. So thank you again. Thank you to our guests again. And I will see you in the not too distant future.